Brian, that was an excellent prayer. Thinking about a united family. And if we are known by the way that we love one another, sometimes we have to love through some differences, don't we? And that's really what we've been talking about here in the book of Romans. And I had a question up there to kind of prime some thoughts this morning. And it's probably a peculiar question to ask at the beginning of Romans chapter 11. But I do have an agenda here. And um, we want to kind of talk about failure and, and how we handle it individually, how it affects the human psyche, what happens when we fail. I know that a lot of times in my life, I don't even want to try for fear of failure, right? And personally, in my life, it wasn't until I really grasped the parable of the talents that I realized I needed to to live and to think a little bit differently. You know, you had the individual that was so afraid to mess up because he knew his master was harsh that he didn't do anything. And that was worse than failing. And I thought, whew, that's big. He would rather me fail trying to do the right thing than not to try at all. So, how do we handle failure? Why do we find it? Why is it so difficult for us to face failure? And, and we refuse to look at it as a learning experience. Sometimes, obviously, the way that you learn is to fail. I remember, um, and I've told this a number of times, that the very first thing my logics professor and philosophy professor told me day one was, all of you stink at this, and you're going to be bad for a while. And I thought, no, my mom told me I was good at everything, and I've got a natural ability for everything. And he was right. And it is hard to learn through the failure. Um, It can can paralyze us uh, into inactivity, right? I was going to say pride. Yes. I feel like we don't want to fail because um, we don't, we're afraid that uh, that will lower uh, everyone's opinion of ourselves, of us, and even of ourselves. Yeah, and that's not an unfounded fear, is it? Failure can change people's opinion of you, and that's not a good feeling. That's not, that's not what you want to do. So I'll, I'll start to kind of focus this in. One thing that I saw in chapter 11 that I haven't seen in chapter 11 before is what God does with failure. We all know that it's so much easier to destroy than it is to build up. Right, um, But hopefully, and if we don't get through all of this, there's one thing that I want us to, to dig into throughout the course of today's study, is how God handles failure. We've already seen this aspect of God that takes someone like me, who was his enemy, and not only forgives the sins, but makes me a son. Does so much more right, than just correcting the thing. 
And that is what is blowing my mind about the character of God, is not just transactionally fixing, but elevating. And what happens with failure? What can God do with failure? That's the incredible thing. And that's really what what I saw in parts of chapter 11. We're going to talk about that today. Paul spends the last chapter continuing his discussion on Israel's state before God. Um, as some of the highlights include from chapter 10, Israel is zealous towards God. They have a lot of zeal for God, but it's not of truth. And there are two kinds of righteousness. There's righteousness by works. And what that says is the one that does these things shall live by them. And there's the righteousness by faith. And remember what that says? There's no need to kind of go into heaven to seek out Jesus or go into the depths. Because the word is right here. It's in your heart and it's by your mouth. Um, The word is near your mouth and near your heart. Calling on the name of the Lord brings salvation. We saw that in chapter 10. This idea of calling on the name of the Lord. Um, It's not Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. right? it It is an act that is demonstrates my reliance on God. Right? Calling on the name of the Lord means I'm seeking Him because I believe that He is able uh, and that He will assist. Um, so we ended this, we ended chapter 10 and obviously, you know, Paul is continuing to kind of, there's no chapter divisions there, so he's kind of fleshing out this argument. And chapter 11 really wraps up this long long-ish um, argument about the state uh, of Israel before God. But he ends chapter 10 by saying, uh, but about Israel, God says, all day long, I held out my hands to this disobedient and stubborn people. How do you think that last, the last few verses of chapter 10 would have left the Israelites feeling? Let me ask you this. Do you think that in the minds of the Israelites, that's probably a bit of a rhetorical question, but uh, do you think that in the minds of the Israelites, it would have felt like God was changing the rules? I mean, think about their their lives before God and and, and how God kind of interacted with them. And as Paul is making these arguments, you know, you have the faith by the, the works and the faith, faith by grace and faith. Um, do you think what Paul was saying would have been radically different to them, Chris? Yeah, I think it was their misunderstanding, obviously, that made them think that. That, was, that appears to be the accusations. You know, God is not objecting his people, verse 1, 11, yeah. and a few other things. For to them, it was, yeah, we had this law. We thought we had all this stuff figured out, and we were the chosen people and the saved ones. And now you're saying there's always been, or what Paul is saying, there's always been a different plan that you didn't quite have figured out. Very good. Absolutely. And so it would have seemed that way. In reality, it wasn't that drastic or radical of, of a mind shift. But obviously for me, the first worry is, am I doing that right now in my own life? And we're going to kind of talk about that later. Uh, but it would have seemed radically different. Um, the Old Testament did seem to emphasize 
works, you know, you, uh, and that kind of thing, especially the sacrificial system and, and really a lot of the things that go into the methodical nature of that. Now, several times God had to point out that I just, <laughs> it's not the sacrifices, right? The sacrifices is kind of a rule I put into place, but it's the heart underneath it. It has always been the heart underneath. And so God never promised salvation by virtue of simply being an Israelite. That's, that's not mentioned anywhere. Um, but chapter 11 seems to be an effort by Paul to prevent the Gentiles from becoming too proud uh, for quote-unquote taking the place of the Jews, if you will. Because chapter 9 and chapter 10 and part of chapter 11, Paul has really been talking about the Israelites. And then he shifts the focus halfway through chapter 11 to say, now I'm talking to you Gentiles, and here's the situation. And as we kind of go back to this idea of a united family, if you have siblings or kids and they start bickering, it's a bit of a dance, isn't it? <laughs> to kind of level the relationship, to mediate, if you will, the relationship. And I, I don't want to make the, um, the statement that Paul is mediating this relationship. He's just pointing out the truth of the plan of salvation. And, and as we'll see, you either accept that and become a part of God's family, or you reject it, and there is kind of a, uh, a division there. Okay, so let's head over to chapter 11. And let's read the first 10 verses. Does anybody want to read uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 11 for me? Brad, can I get you to read uh, first 10 verses, Romans chapter 11? The NIV. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people when he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to pay. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not attain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that did not see and ears that did not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent. Thank you, Brad, for reading that. You know, as we kind of uh, dive into more, once again, more scripture about Paul trying to convince the Israelites, I mean, from my side of the table, it's easy, and maybe it would have been easy for them to go, why did you guys miss this? <laughs> you know, couldn't you see that? And yet, it was 
well into my spiritual life that even I started understanding. And even recently, looking at the Old Testament as the proof for Jesus. Not the New Testament. The New Testament was the record of people interacting with Jesus. But the Old Testament was the proof of working by faith and not necessarily by works. And so, question number one, how does the story of Elijah show that God had not rejected his people? At the end of chapter 10, if I was a Jew in Rome, maybe I would have felt a little dejected. Nope. Yeah, nope. I'm not, I did not post the questions up there, sorry. What was the question? What does the story about Elijah show that, that God had not rejected his people? Okay. Elijah thought he was the only one left. And he was not. There were 7,000 men who had not. They were still considered by God to be faithful. And I think the days of Elijah feel like we're the only one left, especially maybe as a nation. We're the only nation left. And yet there are many nations that, you know, I look about every day on Facebook or something that, that they're coming to the Lord. And we need to realize that people are still coming to the Lord, and we are not alone. And that, that's a big, a big encouragement to that fact. Absolutely. Um, you recall the story of Elijah, and, I, and Alan, you're really hitting on something. I think there's, there's even times now, if, you're, if your faith is strong and the body that you visit with is strong, you can still feel alone. Right, and that that sensation, that emotion, uh, is really crippling, very discouraging. And so, um, notice that the answer to that question was God has His own uh, elect, and we're going to talk about that. But remember, Elijah, um, he had just had a huge victory, <laughs> uh, but then he was being hunted. Uh, by Jezebel. And uh, in, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah was afraid, so he got up and fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He went and sat down under a shrub and asked the Lord to take his life. I've had enough. Now, O oh Lord, take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. He stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub. Suddenly an angelic messenger touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked, and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals and a jug of water. He ate and drank and then slept some more. The angel of the Lord came back again, touched him and said, Get up and eat, for otherwise you will not be able to make the journey. So he got up, ate and drank. The meal gave him strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. You remember he went into the cave, uh, just, he just went like a recluse. He wanted to die, he wanted to give up. And the Lord's message came to him, where are you? Or why are you here, sorry, why are you here, Elijah? He ran, right, had this big victory. He ran, he asked God for death, he ran 40 days. 40 nights until he reached the mountain of God and God's question, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Maybe not as an, I don't know if it was an accusatory or just a, a, a thought-provoking question. Um, 
But he answered, I have been absolutely loyal to the Lord God of heaven's armies, even though the Israelites have abandoned the covenant they made with you, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. And so you remember the story about the earthquake and the fire and the still small voice. Um, But the divine response was, I have kept for myself 7,000 people who have not bent the knee to Baal. Why, Why didn't Elijah know who those individuals were? I mean, that's probably a logistical question, right? Maybe it was just a couple of people from each tribe. But he certainly felt alone, and he was kind of on the front lines of this thing, wasn't he? Elijah was so desperate because he felt like no one was left. He didn't even want to eat. He begged for death. And there were people left that God foreknew, and we're going to talk about that. God knows who are his. So there are 7,000 left. Yeah, Alan. I think he may have been a little self-consumed. He, he was not looking for others. If he had been looking for others, he would have found them. But he was so consumed in his own miseries and wanting to know that God knew he was there, but he, he was just not looking very good, Ryan, up here. Yeah, the, absolutely. That that kind of grief and self-consumption can, can make you blind to other things. Yeah, go ahead. I think one of the difficulties in discouragement and things like that is, is like not seeing the whole picture. And what occurs to me is that with God, things are never as bad as they look. You know, and that's, that's something that I take great comfort in because... You know, things were pretty bad in Israel, and yet Yahweh told Elijah, things are, there are still people out there who love me, and I'm aware of them. And I think that's part of what Paul is really getting at, that God's ability to be aware of every soul that loves him and is loyal to him, uh, and his omniscience and omnipresence is something that we can't fathom. And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like, don't put it on God's end of the stick. And uh, so, you know, I, just, I take from this a couple of things that things are never as bad as they look because in his sovereignty, he will always have people. Uh, we may not be aware of them, but that's because we're limited in finding it. It's not our job to be aware of everyone else. It's our job to do the things that he has given to us to do and have the faith that, that he knows what he's doing and that ultimately, this will all result in his glory and in his victory. And uh, that's a perspective that requires faith. And it has always required faith from Elijah, from his people. And so like you said earlier, faith has always been a component for those who, who love God. Um, they have walked by that principle. Really great comment. And you know, one of the things that you, you said uh, that, that resonates with me, there have been times when you pray a desperate prayer. And why does it always feel like God comes in right at the very last second? But to him, it's not the last second. It was only the last second to you because you're finite and things seem so dire. And maybe God knew you had a lot more in the tank. 
but certainly, uh, I, I really love that idea of really it's been by, by faith. I've got a couple hands here. Right before this happened, Elijah had been on Mount Carmel in the showdown of all showdowns. Mm-hmm. He had put his God up against Baal and their gods. And God, through him, defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. So, it killed them all. And then he comes up there. And so I think this is a little bit of a discipline from God because Elijah walked away and then became fearful of one woman after God had... So, I think he was... More so taking credit for what happened from Mount Carmel. It's like, look what I've done for you. And and now I got this. And God's saying, no, you didn't do that for, I did that through you. And there's 7,000 more. You ain't the only one that can do this. I got 7,000 more left out there. Mm-hmm. And that you need to go find them. Yeah. <laughs> Very good, yeah. You're going to come over here. My thought following um, the show, um, I feel like Elijah was expecting a different result. He was expecting to be a much bigger turnout yeah. on his side. Not to do it by himself, but once he wins, quote unquote wins, um, I, I think he was expecting more people to turn over the leaf and be like, oh, you're right, we were doing the wrong thing. And that's not the result that he got. I think that's part of the depression and misery on his side. Absolutely. And, and I hadn't really thought about it. I think you're absolutely right. Like if I had been witness to that and I was, you know, uh, a prophet preacher at the time, you do this great sermon, right? Like with demonstration and no one is converted. That can be soul crushing, right? But, but once again, we see God making choices to his glory, not to ours. And I really like that. Yes. I think um, all these speculations are really interesting, and it's interesting, too, that we don't actually get to see exactly why Elijah's doing all this. Um, But the whole idea of failure, and I find it interesting that he's still talking to God, and he's still turning to God as, as the whole point of his existence and, and the answer to everything. And I also find it interesting that um, for want of a better word, he needs a nap. Um, <laughs> right. you know, the, and and decent food. Yes. Um, yeah. you know, sometimes we forget that our physical state also affects our mental state. And so all this stuff he's been through and everything, um, how do we handle failure? I think sometimes we don't <laughs> give ourselves I thought that that was an interesting aspect of the, the story too, in the sense that he had to be told, "Hey, if you don't eat, you're you're gonna you're not gonna make the journey." I thought that that was really interesting, and 
and, and kind of tying all of these things together, right? There is this expectation uh, that, that because of God's uh, demonstration, uh, things are going to be so powerful and that is crushing and, and, and that kind of thing. And so, uh, yeah, very good. Who had that? A couple of things. Um, when Elijah said, I alone am loud, the things around it in 1 Kings show there are others. In 1 Kings 18, Obadiah, whose name means servant of the Lord, who mm-hmm. tried to serve the Lord, says he feared the Lord, <coughs> and in the province of the Lord by fifties and caves and Bethlehem, that's right before this. Yes. You see the yes. Others, right after this, First Kings chapter 20, you read, it seems like to me, three different prophets that are mentioned that come to Ahab with a message. And then in First Kings 22, you see Micah as a prophet of God that, that speaks the truth to Ahab. And so, while Elijah's statement is not exactly true, and the text of Kings shows us that, God's answers are that. I think also, though, what it would have done, too, is this is a conviction of that day of the Jewish people. Because Paul is basically comparing them yes. to the apostasy of Ahab. And Ahab's time was one of the darkest times of Israel. And he says that it, 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 he's doing this as a call to them for repentance. God's blessing to be open to them. Yes. If they Excellent, excellent tie. And I do think that the, that the, the Israelites would have seen that comparison. Very good. Who else? The, uh, there's always seen a lot of this example that you used there. It didn't seem to fit exactly with the Romans. Right. I didn't see them saying, hey, we're going on Right. There's no one that God has rejected everybody. I think he goes on right after that and says, just like now, God has always kept a rim. And I think that's the main point of that. God has never completely rejected and wiped out everyone. He's, even of Israel, only the true Israel were the remnant. And then in the time of the Romans, you know, the Jews and a lot had missed that. But there were still some of those that had believed right. properly. So, so, yeah, like, um, we're going to come back to that. I've had a, Ron, did you have a? Yeah, the way that God puts this is interesting. Um, I would have expected him to say to Elijah, there are 7,000 other people who have not had me to bail, just like you, Elijah. And he says that I have kept for myself mm-hmm. 7,000 people, um, using really the same language that Paul used about Absolutely. And as we kind of tie this back to the tail end of chapter 10, it's kind of Chris mentioned the fact that how would you have been left feeling <laughs> at the end when basically Paul is saying, no, you didn't get it right. You missed the point. God held out his hands to a stubborn people. Well, did he completely reject Israel? No, he didn't. 
even when Israel felt very, 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 very alone, God still had this elect, the remnant that he foreknew. And as an answer to this question on uh, why God has not rejected specifically the Israelites, because it may seem to them through Paul's message that they were being rejected. And he's making the point, there's only one way to be rejected by God. And some of you are doing that. In fact, a majority of the Israelites are doing that. And if it were up to me, I would have myself accursed for the sake of my brethren. And they're very zealous for God, right? He's making all these points about Israel and the state of their relationship. Those who have rejected... uh, So the rejection of Israel is not total. And God will always have a a remnant. Those who have rejected Christ can still participate. Paul was an Israelite. Paul rejected Christ. And now where is he? He's working on behalf of the Savior. All of the covenants that God promised were kept. All of the promises God made to that nation were kept. But individual salvation was never guaranteed. Okay, and so uh, there's always been a remnant. Even now there's a remnant of Jews, right, that were looking specifically for Jesus. I don't know if you noticed, but 7,000 didn't really seem like a a really large number of people compared to the nation of Israel. I don't know if that's a commentary. I I don't think there was specifically 7,000. Maybe there was. I don't know, but I don't think that that's the case. I think that God knows the kind of people that he wants in his kingdom. Um, and so this, is, this concept is not an extraordinary uh, circumstance. Um, so verse 5, so the same way uh, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Even now, people have accepted Jews that had rejected Jesus, you recall, had accepted him in Acts. So in Romans, uh, okay, so let's go uh, 11 and verse 7. What then Israel failed to obtain what it was diligently seeking, but the elect obtained it. Question number two was, what was, uh, what was Israel seeking? What were they diligently seeking? This might be a nuanced answer. But what then Israel failed to obtain what it was diligently seeking, but the elect obtained it. Romans 9, 31, I think, answers that in verse 32, but that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works, they have stumbled, stumbled over the stumbling block. Absolutely, yeah. They were seeking justification. They wanted to be right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but they weren't going about it in the right way. They were seeking their own justification and not God's justification. You take God out of the equation in anything and we have many, many, many examples as to what happens next. Very good. Um, Who was it that obtained it? It was this elect, this remnant. Obviously, this is what the argument that Paul has been making this entire time, and he continues to emphasize, but the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened, as it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear. 
to this very day. Uh, There have always been two Israels, right? Even now, there are two Israels. There is the, the physical, racial Israel, and then there is the spirit, the spiritual Israel, the elect, the remnant, those uh, that seek justification by faith through grace. So, uh, as we look down, another kind of... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Brad, sorry. So I think um, as, as the listener, as the reader of this letter, kind of listens to Paul talk about the state, the relationship of Israel to, to God, right? And they're kind of left with this idea that, well, everything that, <laughs> everything that I knew, right, was wrong in a sense. And no one likes to hear that, right? And a lot of times when you do hear that, you're like, well, that's not true, and you're not right, and that's wrong. You know, like, so, so Paul is trying to build this argument. So I think, really, the idea of the 7,000 means, well, does that just mean that the way that God handled Israel and grew Israel and worked with Israel, that's just out the window? And he's like, no. Because the way that you're seeing it right now is really never the way it actually worked. Right, you kind of missed the point, and so there, there. The idea here was was just God writing off the nation of Israel because we missed the point. Nope. Mm-mm. There's always been a remnant, and there's always been people that have looked at what God has promised and were grateful and did the things because they had a loving God, not because they knew that slaughtering this animal would buy me out for the rest of the day. I don't know if that answered your question. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I saw that example being used as. I'm not sure if this answers the question, but I was thinking about uh, things in Acts 10 where it talks about when they were the Jew, Jewish Christians were worried about the Gentiles entering into the kingdom. The Bible tells us that, that they were excited, that they were glorified God, that repentance had been granted to the Gentiles. Um, I think when Yahweh says I've reserved 7,000, I, I think the emphasis is I yeah. have reserved. I have granted sinful creatures the, the, the privilege to come back. And that's, as I think about grace as it relates to this text and the text in Isaiah, Elijah's day, and that's kind of what jumps off, off the page to me is the fact that no matter what age of man Dealing with sinful, broken creatures, none of us are are with God 
without him first having granted yes. repentance yeah. to us. So even in Elijah's day, those who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal are still operating in, a, in that, that faith capacity because they have been, they've accepted what's been granted to them. They haven't turned it away in their arrogance, which is what you know, most everyone else does. And so I, that, that's what I think of when I think of how grace and faith how they tie together between what Paul is saying here uh, in Romans and then back to Elijah's days that no matter where we've been, man, if he's going to be right with God, it's not going to be because he's checked off the checklist. He's already failed. He has to have that faith. And, and only because first, grace granted that faith could even accomplish this in the first place. You know, um, <laughs> I've been a Christian for 30 years. I live in a time of revelation. I have the full revelation of God. And to this day, I still struggle with it not being me, right? And <clears throat> there is some nuance there. But certainly having been brought up like an Israelite, this would have been a bit of a shift if I didn't know what to look for. And for sure, I think it's not an Israelite problem. I think it's a human problem. Uh, and I really think that that's what Paul is trying to, to kind of argue here as well. I have Brad and then, and then over Bob. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the distinction is that he says, I've observed 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, he didn't say, I've observed 7,000 who have kept the law. Right. I have, I, I've observed 7,000 who did all the sacrifices and they did all the things they were supposed to do. So I've observed it. Or their heart is mine, right? Because, yeah. He doesn't say it was because they kept the law. Right. He says they just didn't bow the knee to bend. Right, right. I, I, that's a, it's a, it's a bit of a distinction. Yeah, uh, Bob and then Chris. You, you had begun asking the question that after Paul said in the last part of chapter 10, what, you know, how would the Jews felt from that? Well, there's two answers. One, those that were seeking to be justified wouldn't have understood it, wouldn't have gotten it. But those who had softened their hearts mm -hmm. uh, would have said, yes, I understand. And even back in Elijah's day and, and God's dealing with the Israelites, I think a, a, an excellent answer of all that is when Jesus was talking about the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was seeking to be justified. Right. I did this. Right. I did that. And that was the whole mentality of the Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of the Jews. Yeah. But there were some, like the tax collector, who couldn't even look up into heaven and said, forgive me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He was seeking grace. Not justification. And that's what we have here is don't seek to be justified. Seek God's grace that will help you through. When I start my relationship there, it's in the recognition that He is the giver. Right? Like when you start your spiritual journey there, those things align, right? He is the giver. Then I can do because He has given. Right, Chris. I think one of the main points of this whole book is in the contrast between the works and the grace. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes it gets a little confusing as to where, right. where you draw that line. And right. I think this is one of those things. He's saying now there's a remnant by grace. Yes. At that point, he gave an example of a physical works. They didn't bow the knee. They were still doing, as Christ said, they were still doing the sacrifices. They, mm -hmm. were, they were the right people. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if that's like necessarily a commentary on their salvation or whatever. I, you know, it appears to be, but I think he then makes that contrast again. Now, according to you guys, we've completely switched it. It's no longer keeping those sacrifices and doing those works, which is what you were <coughs> I, thinking he was. It's now grace. It is, it is difficult because we see on the outside and God sees on the inside. Two individuals can perform sacrifices. One of those sacrifices are accepted, and one of them is not. And the difference is something that's dip more difficult for us to see, right? Even within ourselves, right? Did I do that because I really have faith, or did I do that just to gain the approval of men? We will, right? I think that's why, and I totally agree with you, Chris. That's the difficulty here in, in measuring. And uh, we have to decide and we'll talk about this in just a moment, like, am I in the right frame of mind when I'm doing this thing? Like, am I doing it because I believe God is the giver of the grace, or am I doing this to justify myself? That's a difficult question to ask, yeah. I feel like the overall thing, the whole overall thing of the book of Romans, is like the first four chapters of the book of Romans, if you go through about four and a half, and read it, he deals with sins and sin. It's our personal sin that we're all destroyed because of all of us would be dead in the water if we didn't have a way from that sin. Then after about four and a half, he picks up with and he changes the theme to sin, single. So I think he has to deal with our sins, which needs forgiveness, and our desire to sin, which needs deliverance. And both of those can only come through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 9, he seems to pick up through the end of the, the book where he is like, all right, now we have the hindsight to go back right. and see that all of your forefathers that thought you think was doing it by works was doing it by God's deliverance the same as everybody else. We can only be forgiven of our sins and delivered from our desire to sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's how it's always been. That's how it always will be. It goes back and picks up your forefathers. They didn't get anywhere by their words, but it seems like it's grown to the point where everybody takes God out of it and in his hand. So it's a God is always in it. Yeah. And so we all need forgiveness and deliverance from the beginning of time to the end of time. And that can only come through the plan of God from the very beginning. So would there, and that's a, that's a good point, would their um, behavior changed much after the recognition of this? Um... I mean, certainly the Pharisees in using the law to justify themselves would have changed. Like when, when Jesus was talking about, you know, you should be helping your parents, not just giving that away to the, to the priest. But what, <laughs> when the heart changed, like they were still living their lives doing, you know, obviously, uh, uh, if 
as an Old Testament Israelite, someone told me that, hey, this is all by, this is really like the sacrifice is supposed to mean something, right? Like I still would have been doing the sacrifices. My daily life may not have changed, but my heart would have changed, right? And then that changes my outlook on my fellow individuals, my fellow people, Right, so there, it's 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 a really kind of interesting thing. Okay, so we've got just a couple of minutes left, and I want to kind of tie this back to um, to what God has done with the failure of Israel, because that's really what I've gotten out of this particular chapter. Paul uses an illustration to the Gentiles to say, "Hey, God had to remove some branches from this olive tree." And in essence, had to uh, because they didn't accept Christ and you have been grafted in. And that's not normal to do, right? Like you normally don't take a wild olive branch and put it on a grown or a gardened olive tree, if you will. Back in 13, he says, uh, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, seeing that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I could provoke my people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first portion of the dough offered is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, so too are the branches. What is the root of the nation of Israel? It's God's grace. That's the root. He chose them. Why? Because it was his choice. He didn't choose them based on whether they were... Uh, amazing or, or uh, powerful or anything like that. He chose them because it's him. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among them and participated in the richness of the olive root, do not boast over the branches. Why? Because if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Once again, like leveling the Israelites, leveling the Gentiles, the moment you take God out of the equation, everything gets turned upside down. Always. Every aspect of your life. When God is removed, you've upended the whole thing. And so, like, as Paul spends all this time talking about the Israelites and how they miss the points, he turns to the Gentiles and he's like, don't forget, you're not the root. You're supported by the root. You're supported by the grace of God. For if you were cut off from, uh, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? When I think about this, I think about the Jews thought that God loved them because they were special. Right. The same thing. We, yes. We're special because God loves us. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Right? And that, and that small, simple statement really is... One is completely opposite, isn't it, right? Like, um, and so I think you're right. And I think, once again, that's not a, an Israel problem. That's a human problem. That's a pride problem. Um, uh, verse 28, uh, and so, actually, verse 26, and so all Israel be, will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but in regards to the election, they are dearly loved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you were formerly disobedient to God, but now have received mercy due to their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, 
they too may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all people to disobedience so that he may show mercy to them all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. At the beginning of next class, we're going to touch on this. And how God can take failures and make them incredible. And that's ultimately what he's done with us as well, right? The whole idea is that you can't be perfect, but I can justify you. I can take failure and elevate failure. Uh, and, And Paul's response to this is just incredible. The depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Back to this idea that we are finite, we're frail, there's no way we can even comprehend what he's doing. So just have faith, because every single time, he will win, his purpose will be met, he will be glorified, he will justify. Thank you so much for your participation this morning.